Chapter Two of Through the Magic Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Samantha Broswell. Through the Magic Door by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Two. It is a great thing to start life with a small number of really good books which are your very own. You may not appreciate them at first. You may pine for your novel of crude and unadulterated adventure. You may and will give it the preference when you can. But the dull days come, and the rainy days come, and always you are driven to fill up the chinks of your reading with the worthy books which wait so patiently for your notice. And then suddenly, on a day which marks an epoch in your life, you understand the difference. You see like a flash how the one stands for nothing, and the other for literature. From that day onwards you may return to your crudities, but at least you do so with some standard of comparison in your mind. You can never be the same as you were before. Then gradually the good thing becomes more dear to you. It builds itself up with growing in your mind. It becomes a part of your better self, and so at last you can look, as I do now, at the old covers and love them for all that they have meant in the past. Yes, it was the olive-green line of Scott's novels which started me on to Rhapsody. They were the first books I ever owned, long, long before I could appreciate or even understand them. But at last I realized what a treasure they were. In my boyhood I read them by surreptitious candle-ends in the dead of night, when the sense of crime added a new zest to the story. Perhaps you have observed that my Ivanhoe is of a different edition from the others. The first copy was left in the grass by the side of a stream, fell into the water, and was eventually picked up three days later, swollen and decomposed, upon a mud-bank. I think I may say, however, that I had worn it out before I lost it. Indeed, it was perhaps as well that it was some years before it was replaced, for my instinct was always to read it again instead of breaking fresh ground. I remember the late James Payne telling the anecdote that he and two literary friends agreed to write down what scene in fiction they thought the most dramatic, and that on examining the papers it was found that all three had chosen the same. It was the moment when the unknown knight, at Ashby de la Zouche, riding past the pavilions of the lesser men, strikes with the sharp end of his lance and a challenge to mortal combat, the shield of the formidable Templar. It was, indeed, a splendid moment. What matter that no Templar was allowed by the rules of his order, take part in so secular and frivolous an affair as a tournament. It is the privilege of great masters to make things so, and it is a churlish thing to gainsay it. Was it not Wendell Holmes who described the prosaic man, who enters a drawing-room with a couple of facts, like ill-conditioned bulldogs at his heels, ready to let them loose on any play of fancy? A great writer can never go wrong. If Shakespeare gives a sea-coast to Bohemia, or Victor Hugo calls an English prize fighter Mr. Jim John Jack. Well, it was so, and that's the end of it. There is no second line of rails at that point, said an editor to a minor author. I make a second line, said the author, and he was within his rights, if he can carry his reader's conviction with him. But this is a digression from Ivanhoe. What a book it is! The second greatest historical novel in our language, I think. Every successive reading has deepened my admiration for it. Scott's soldiers are always as good as his women with exceptions are weak. 
but here while the soldiers are at their very best the romantic figure of rebecca redeems the female side of the story from the usual commonplace routine scott drew manly men because he was a manly man himself and found the task a sympathetic one he drew young heroines because a convention demanded it which he had never the hardihood to break it is only when we get him for a dozen chapters on end with the minimum of petticoat in the long stretch for example from the beginning of the tournament to the end of the friar tuck incident that we realize the height of continued romantic narrative to which he could attain i don't think in the whole range of our literature we have a finer sustained flight than that there is i admit an intolerable amount of redundant verbiage in scott's novels those endless and unnecessary introductions make the shell very thick before you can come to the oyster they are often admirable in themselves learned witty picturesque but with no relation or proportion to the story which they are supposed to introduce like so much of our english fiction they are very good matter in a very bad place digression and want of method and order are traditional national sins fancy introducing an essay on how to live on nothing a year as thackeray did in vanity fair or sandwiching in a ghost story as dickens has dared to do as well might a dramatic author rush up to the footlights and begin telling anecdotes while his play was suspending its action and his characters waiting wearily behind him it is all wrong though every great name can be quoted in support of it our sense of form is lamentably lacking and sir walter sinned with the rest but get past all that to a crisis in the real story and who finds the terse phrase the short fire word so surely as he do you remember when the reckless sergeant of dragoons stands at last before the grim puritan upon whose head a price has been set a thousand marks or a bed of heather says he as he draws the puritan draws also the sword of the lord and of gideon says he no verbiage there but the very spirit of either man and of either party in a few stern words which haunt your mind bows and bills cry the saxon brandians as the moslem horse charges home you feel it is just what they must have cried even more terse and business-like was the actual battle-cry of the fathers of the same men on that long-drawn day when they fought under the red dragon of wessex on the low ridge at hastings out out they roared as the norman chivalry broke upon them terse strong prosaic the very genius of the race was in the cry is it that the higher emotions are not there or is it that they are damped down and covered over as too precious to be exhibited something of each perhaps i once met the widow of the man who as a young signal midshipman had taken nelson's famous message from the signal yeoman and communicated it to the ship's company the officers were impressed the men were not duty they muttered we've always done it why not anything in the least highfalutin would depress not exalt a british company it is the understatement which delights them german troops can march to battle singing luther's hymns frenchmen will work themselves into a frenzy by a song of glory and of fatherland our martial poets need not trouble to imitate or at least need not imagine that if they do so they will ever supply a want to the british soldier our sailors working the heavy guns in south africa say here's another lump of sugar for the bird i saw a regiment go into action to the refrain of a little bit off the top the martial poet aforesaid unless he had the genius and the insight of a kipling 
would have wasted a good deal of ink before he had got down to such chance as these the russians are not unlike us in this respect i remember reading of some column ascending a breach and singing lustily from start to finish until a few survivors were left victorious upon the crest with the song still going a spectator inquired what wondrous chant it was which had warmed them to such a deed of valour and he found that the exact meaning of the words endlessly repeated was ivan is in the garden picking cabbages the fact is i suppose that a mere monotonous sound may take the place of the tom-tom of savage warfare and hypnotize the soldier into valour our cousins across the atlantic have the same blending of the comic with their most serious work take the songs which they sang during the most bloody war which the anglo-celtic race has ever waged the only war in which it could have been said that they were stretched their uttermost and showed their true form tramp 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 john brown's body marching through georgia all had a playful humour running through them only one exception do i know and that is the most tremendous war song i can recall even an outsider in time of peace can hardly read it without emotion i mean of course julia ward howe's war song of the republic with that opening choral line mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the lord if that were ever sung upon a battlefield the effect must have been terrific a long digression is it not but that is the worst of the thoughts at the other side of the magic door you can't pull one out without a dozen being entangled with it but it was scott's soldiers that i was talking of and i was saying that there is nothing theatrical no posing no heroics the things of all others which the hero abominates but just the short bluff word and the simple manly ways with every expression and metaphor drawn from within his natural range of thought what a pity it is that he with his keen appreciation of the soldier gave us so little of those soldiers who were his own contemporaries the finest perhaps that the world has ever seen it is true that he wrote a life of the great soldier emperor but that was the one piece of hack-work of his career how could a tory patriot whose whole training had been to look upon napoleon as a malignant demon do justice to such a theme but the europe of those days was full of material which he of all men could have drawn with a sympathetic hand what would we not give for a portrait of one of murat's light cavalrymen or of a grenadier of the old guard drawn with the same bold strokes as rittmeister of gustavus or the archers of the french king's guard in quentin durward in his visit to paris scott must have seen many of those iron men who during the preceding twenty years had been the scourge and also the redemption of europe to us the soldiers who scowled at him from the sidewalks in eighteen fourteen would have been as interesting and as much romantic figures of the past as the mail-clad knights or ruffling cavaliers of his novels a picture from the life of a peninsular veteran with his views upon the duke would be as striking as dugald dalgetty from the german wars but then no man ever does realize the true interest of the age in which he happens to live all sense of proportion is lost and the little thing hard by obscures the great thing at a distance it is easy in the dark to confuse the firefly and the star fancy for example the old masters seeking their subjects in inn parlours or st sebastian's while columbus was discovering america before their very faces i have said that i think ivanhoe the best of scott's novels i suppose most people would subscribe to that but how about the second best 
it speaks well for their general average that there is hardly one among them which might not find some admirers who would vote it to a place of honour to the scottish-born man these novels which deal with scottish life and characters have a quality of raciness which gives them a place apart there is a rich humour of the soil in such books as old mortality the antiquary and rob roy which puts him in a different class from the others his old scottish women are next to his soldiers the best series of types that he has drawn at the same time it must be admitted that merit which is associated with dialect has such limitations that it can never take the same place as work which makes an equal appeal to all the world on the whole perhaps quentin durward on account of its wider interests its strong character drawing and the european importance of the events and people described would have my vote for the second place it is the father of all those sword and cape novels which have formed so numerous an addition to the light literature of the last century the pictures of charles the bold and of the unspeakable louis are extraordinarily vivid i can see those two deadly enemies watching the hounds chasing the herald and clinging to each other in the convulsion of their cruel mirth more clearly than most things which my eyes have actually rested upon the portrait of louis with his astuteness his cruelty his superstition and his cowardice is followed closely from Comines, and is the more effective when set up against his bluff and warlike rival it is not often that historical characters work out in their actual physique exactly as one would picture them to be but in the high church of innsbruck i have seen effigies of louis and charles which might have walked from the very pages of scott louis thin ascetic varminty and charles with the head of a prize fighter it is hard on us when a portrait upsets all our preconceived ideas when for example we see in the national portrait gallery a man with a noble olive-tinted poetic face and with a start read beneath it that it was the wicked judge jeffreys occasionally however as at innsbruck we are absolutely satisfied i have before me on the mantelpiece yonder a portrait of a painting which represents queen mary's bothwell take it down and look at it mark the big head fit to conceive large schemes the strong animal face made to captivate a sensitive feminine woman the brutally forceful features the mouth with a suggestion of wild boar's tusks behind it the beard which could bristle with fury the whole man and his life history are revealed in that picture i wonder if scott had ever seen the original which hangs at the hepburn family seat personally i have always had a very high opinion of a novel which the critics have used somewhat harshly and which came almost the last from his tired pen i mean count robert of paris i am convinced that if it had been the first instead of the last of the series it would have attracted as much attention as waverley it can understand the state of mind of the expert who cried out in mingled admiration and despair i have studied the conditions of byzantine society all my life and here comes a scotch lawyer who makes the whole thing clear to me in a flash many men could draw with more or less success norman england or medieval france but to reconstruct a whole dead civilization in so plausible a way with such dignity and such minuteness of detail is i should think a most wonderful tour de force his failing health showed itself before the end of the novel but had the latter half equalled the first and contained scenes of such humour as anna comena reading aloud her father's exploits or such majesty as the account of the muster of the crusaders upon the shores of bosphorus 
then the book could not have been gainsaid its rightful place in the very front rank of the novels i would that he had carried on his narrative and given us a glimpse of the actual progress of the first crusade what an incident was ever anything in the world's history like it it had what historical incidents seldom have a definite beginning middle and end from the half-crazed preaching of peter down to the fall of jerusalem those leaders it would take a second homer to do them justice godfrey the perfect soldier and leader bowman the unscrupulous and formidable tancred the ideal knight-errant robert of normandy the half-mad hero here is material so rich that one feels one is not worthy to handle it what richest imagination could ever evolve anything more marvellous and thrilling than the actual historical facts but what a glorious brotherhood the novels are think of the pure romance of the talisman the exquisite picture of hebridean life in the pirate the splendid reproduction of elizabethan england in kenilworth the rich humour of the legend of montrose above all bear in mind that in all that splendid series written in a coarse age there is not one word to offend the most sensitive car and it is borne in upon one how great and noble a man was walter scott and how high the service which he did for literature and for humanity for that reason his life is good reading and there it is on the same shelf as the novels lockhart was of course his son-in-law and his admiring friend the ideal biographer should be a perfectly impartial man with a sympathetic mind but a stern determination to tell the absolute truth one would like the frail human side of man as well as the other i cannot believe that any one in the world was ever quite so good as the subject of most of our biographies surely these worthy people swore a little sometimes or had a keen eye for a pretty face or opened the second bottle when they would have done better to stop at the first or did something to make us feel that they were men and brothers they need not go to the length of the lady who began a biography of her deceased husband with the words d was a dirty man but the book certainly would be more readable and the subjects more lovable too if we had greater light and shade in the picture but i am sure that the more one knew of scott the more one would have admired him he lived in a drinking age and in a drinking country and i have not a doubt that he took an allowance of toddy occasionally of an evening which would have laid his feeble successors under the table his last years at least poor fellow were abstemious enough when he sipped his barley water while the others passed the decanter but what a high-souled chivalrous gentleman he was and how fine a sense of honour translating itself not into empty phrases but into years of labour and denial you remember how he became sleeping partner in a printing-house and so involved himself in its failure there was a legal but very little moral claim against him and no one could have blamed him had he cleared the account by a bankruptcy which would have enabled him to become a rich man again within a few years yet he took the whole burden upon himself and bore it for the rest of his life spending his work his time and his health in the one long effort to save his honour from the shadow of a stain it was nearly a hundred thousand pounds i think which he passed on to the creditors a great record a hundred thousand pounds with his life thrown in and what a power of work he had he was superhuman only the man who has tried to write fiction himself knows what it means when it is recorded 
that Scott produced two of his long novels in one single year. I remember reading in some book of reminiscences, on second thoughts it was in Lockhart himself, how the writer had lodged in some rooms in Castle Street, Edinburgh, and how he had seen all evening the silhouette of a man outlined on the blind of the opposite house. All evening the man wrote, and the observer could see the shadow hand conveying the sheets of paper from the desk to the pile at the side. He went to a party and returned, but still the hand was moving the sheets. Next morning he was told that the rooms opposite were occupied by Walter Scott. A curious glimpse into the psychology of the writer of fiction is shown by the fact that he wrote two of his books, good ones too, at a time when his health was such that he could not afterwards remember one word of them, and listened to them when they were read to him as if he were hearing the work of another man. Apparently the simplest processes of the brain, such as ordinary memory, were in complete abeyance, and yet the very highest and most complex faculty, imagination in its supreme form, was absolutely unimpaired. It is an extraordinary fact and one to be pondered over. It gives some support to the feeling which every writer of imaginative work must have, that his supreme work comes to him in some strange way from without, and that he is only the medium for placing it upon the paper. The creative thought, the germ thought from which a larger growth is to come, flies through his brain like a bullet. He is surprised at his own idea, with no conscious sense of having originated it. And here we have a man, with all other brain functions paralyzed, producing this magnificent work. Is it possible that we are indeed but conduit pipes from the infinite reservoir of the unknown? Certainly it is always our best work which leaves the least sense of personal effort. And to pursue this line of thought, it is possible that frail physical powers and an unstable nervous system, by keeping a man's materialism at its lowest, render him a more fitting agent for these spiritual uses? It is an old tag that, Great genius is to madness close alive, and thin partitions do these rooms divide. But apart from genius, even a moderate faculty for imaginative work seems to me to weaken seriously the ties between the soul and the body. Look at the British poets of a century ago. Chatterton, Burns, Shelley, Keats, Byron. Burns was the oldest out of that brilliant band, yet Burns was only thirty-eight when he passed away, burned out, as his brother terribly expressed it. Shelley, it is true, died by accident, and Chatterton by poison, but suicide is in itself a sign of a morbid state. It is true that Rogers lived to be almost a centenarian, but he was banker first and poet afterwards. Wordsworth, Tennyson, and Browning have all raised the average age of the poets, but for some reason the novelists, especially of late years, have a deplorable record. They will end by being scheduled with the white lead workers and other dangerous trades. Look at the really shocking case of the young Americans, for example. What a band of promising young writers have in a few years been swept away. There was the author of that admiral book, David Harum. There was Frank Norris, a man who had in him, I think, the seeds of greatness more than almost any living writer. His, Pitt, seemed to me one of the finest American novels. He also died a premature death. Then there was Stephen Crane, a man who had also done most brilliant work, and there was Harold Frederick, another master craftsman. Is there any profession in the world which in proportion to its numbers could show such losses as that? 
in the meantime out of our own men robert louis stevenson is gone and henry sutton merriman and many another even those great men who are usually spoken of as if they had rounded off their career were really premature in their end thackeray for example in spite of his snowy head was only fifty-two dickens attained the age of fifty-eight on the whole sir walter with his sixty-one years of life although he never wrote a novel until he was over forty had fortunately for the world a longer working career than most of his brethren he employed his creative faculty for about twenty years which is as much i suppose as shakespeare did the bard of avon is another example of the limited tenure which genius has of life though i believe that he outlived the greater part of his own family who were not a healthy stock he died i should judge of some nervous disease that is shown by the progressive degeneration of his signature probably it was locomotor ataxy which is the special scourge of the imaginative man heine daudet and how many more were its victims as to the tradition first mentioned long after his death that he died of a fever contracted from a drinking bout is as absurd on the face of it since no such fever is known to science but a very moderate drinking bout would be extremely likely to bring a chronic nervous complaint to a disastrous end one other remark upon scott before i pass on from that line of green volumes which has made me so digressive and so garrulous no account of his character is complete which does not deal with the strange secretive vein which ran through his nature not only did he stretch the truth on many occasions in order to conceal the fact that he was the author of the famous novels but even intimate friends who met him day by day were not aware that he was the man about whom the whole of europe was talking even his wife was ignorant of his pecuniary liabilities until the crash of the ballantine firm told her for the first time that they were shares in the ruin a psychologist might trace this strange twist of his mind in the numerous elfish vanilla-like characters who flit about and keep their irritating secret through the long chapters of so many of his novels it's a sad book lockhart's life it leaves gloom in the mind the sight of this weary giant staggering along burdened with debt overladen with work his wife dead his nerves broken and nothing intact but his honour is one of the most moving in the history of literature but they pass these clouds and all that is left is the memory of the supremely noble man who would not be bent but faced fate to the last and died in his tracks without a whimper he sampled every human emotion great was his joy and great his success great was his downfall and bitter his grief but of all the sons of men i don't think that there are many greater than he who lies under that great slab at dryburg End of chapter 2 Recording by Samantha Braswell